Good morning, friends. This is the day, this is the earth, this is the creation that our Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We are so pleased to have you with us for chapel worship on this week when we as a nation and those around the world are remembering and honoring Earth Day. We welcome those of you who are here, those who are with us in spirit and in virtually. As we begin our time of worship, let us stand as we sing hymn number 178. Thank you. 
Join me in this unison prayer. Together. God of cosmos and quarks. God of rainbows and roly-polies. God of electricity and enzymes. You created the earth and proclaimed it good. The galaxies and planets are known to you, yet also the hairs on our heads. You cradle all things in the palm of your hand, supporting us with love. We magnify your name for our creation and for all the blessings of this life. Sustain in us a spirit of awe for how you continue to be present in the world and help us to act with love for all that you have created. From the Psalter, Psalm 8. I invite you to read the dark lines in response to my lighter whole print. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Your glory is chanted above the heavens by the mouth of babes and infants. You have set up When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? And mortals that you care for them. Yet you have made them little less than God. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the Amos 7, 1 through 17. This is what the Lord God showed me. He was forming locusts at the time, and later growth began to sprout. It was the later growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beg you. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. The Lord God was calling for a shower of fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, cease, I beg you. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line. 
with a plumb line in his hand, and the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, See, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the swords. Then Amaziah, the priest of Babylon, sent to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you. In the very center of the house of Israel, the land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile, away from this land. And Amarias said to Amos, O Shear, go flee away to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered Amarias, I am no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I am a herdsman and a deserter of a dresser of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus says the Lord, Your wife shall become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fail by the sword, and your land shall be parceled out by line, and you yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from this land.
freedom Awaken flourish Let the deep roots nourish Let the tall stalks rise Let her rise, let her rise Oh healing This morning, we are pleased to welcome Dr. Peter Dula as our speaker and to share just a brief bio of Dr. Dula. He is a professor of religion and culture at EMU and has taught courses here in theology, ethics, and philosophy since 2006, both in the undergraduate department and the seminary. He received a PhD from Duke University in Theology and Ethics in 2004. Since coming to EMU, Peter started both the Campus Garden and the Bike Co-op, which many of us have benefited from, both of these. In 2016, the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions invited Peter to write a review essay on Anabaptist eco-theology, which was published in Mennonite Quarterly Review in 2020. He has been researching these themes ever since. So we are pleased to hear about this focus of your work today, Peter, and we welcome you as our speaker this morning. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, thanks for coming. So uh, I, I, Friday, I gave myself this ridiculous title, Doom and Hope in an Age of Climate Change. Uh, now I have to live up to it. Uh, so I want to I, I basically just uh, um, you know, reflect out loud about uh, um, what feel to me like sort of loose ends in some of this conversation and some of what I've been doing. So um, uh, bear with me. Uh, Eco-theology as we understand it today began approximately 50 years ago, about the time I was born. As many people became more aware of environmental problems and Christians became more penitently aware of the complicity of Christianity and Christian theology in those problems. So the standard story goes something like this. Most Christian theology made two related mistakes. Its anthropology promoted a hierarchical dualism of soul and body, heaven and earth, spirit and matter, and its doctrine of creation separated God from world. And both of those things encouraged a culture deeply entangled with Christianity 
to devalue creation in ways that left it wide open for the exploitation that came with colonialism, industrialism, in a word, capitalism. Just as far as that was true, we could either abandon Christianity or recover more ecologically responsible ways of thinking about the relation of God, humans, and creation. The latter choice, in conversation with a wide range of non-Christian resources, turned out to be incredibly productive theologically. Right? We've come a long way in the way we think about the environment and creation in Christian theology and in Christian churches. And that seemed like theological progress. At least here in 2022, it seems like there's been theological progress made. But the demoralizing thing is the way the theological progress and the political progress were going in opposite directions. When the theology was supposedly at its worst, the politics was at its best. The early 1970s were an era of major legislative victories in the US the formation of the Environmental Protection Agency, the passing of the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Air Act, all early 1970s bipartisan victories of the Nixon administration. As we now know, the 1970s were a false start. Then the problems were thought to be pollution and species extinction and all that legislation addressed that. By the late 1980s, we started to learn about climate change. We started thinking and talking about it as a future threat. In 2022, it is a present danger. Here upon us in record-breaking heat waves, wildfires, droughts, floods, and storms. And the bipartisan cooperation of the 1970s is as extinct as the woolly mammoth. Nowadays, it seems like the confrontation between Amos and Amaziah is occurring almost daily, and the encounter between climate scientists and activists like Catherine Hayhoe, Greta Thunberg, AOC on one hand, on the other hand, the right-wing media monster some of you will know the name Catherine Hayhoe. Uh, she's a Texas Tech climate scientist, co-author of the two most recent national climate assessments, and an evangelical Christian. After a recent address to the Austin City Council about preparation for extreme weather events, one prominent councilman responded, you don't have to be as smart as a fifth grader to know that what causes the climate is the sun. I have people tell me carbon dioxide warms the earth. No, it doesn't. The sun warms the earth. The sun doesn't need a permit from the EPA. Or take Greta Thunberg, who stood before the UN just three years ago and said to all of us, how dare you? You are failing us but young people are starting to understand your betrayal. The eyes of all future generations are upon you. If you choose to fail us, I say, we will never forgive you. We will not let you get away with this. Right here, right now is where we draw the line. The world is waking up and changing is coming whether you like it or not. That's the prophetic voice. And Amaziah, in the form of Fox News, called her, quote, 
a mentally ill Swedish child being exploited by her parents and the international left. Even better, a former Trump administration official said, she's ignorant, maniacal, and being mercilessly manipulated by adult climate bedwetters funded by Putin. <laughs> this was a couple years ago. You can share the first slide, Clay. Um, as I read, as I hear these and read them in the paper, I see all sorts of striking parallels to Amaziah. So I want us to look just a little bit at how pervasive is Amaziah's misunderstanding. I have two lines here italicized. He says the land is not able to bear all Amos's words and never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. There's at least three mistakes here and it's worth listing them. First, it is not Amos's words, it's God's words. Amaziah is able to deflect the force of the prophet by avoiding the source of authority. The word of Israel's God gets turned into the quirk of an individual. But this avoidance is itself pervasive because second, Bethel is not the king's sanctuary. It is God's sanctuary. Because Amaziah can see no daylight between the king and God, he has forsaken his role as priest. Charged with the maintenance of the proper worship of God, he instead has given himself over to the preservation of the king and the state. And third, Amaziah says, the land is not able to endure all his words. This is perhaps the most damaging deflection of all the one we see in all the responses to Heho and Thunberg. For what the herdsman Amos is saying is that the land cannot endure the greed of the Israelite elite, the greed enabled by Amaziah. For climate skeptics, the environment, the land is not threatened. Modern corporate industrial society is threatened. So they make a parallel mistake as Amaziah. They misname the threat and can't acknowledge what is in fact threatened. How do you read the prophets? By you, I mean everyone but the professional biblical scholars in this room. <laughs> I'm no biblical scholar, still less an Old Testament scholar. So mostly I have read them all my life like a penitent liberal Protestant. That is, read the prophets as the radical, ethical, Anabaptist strand in the Old Testament that helps mitigate or compensate for the priestly Catholic strands. Penitent because nowadays we are much more aware of the deep current of anti-Semitism that undergirded those anti-priestly readings. And if, it, if that reading seems fair to any of the prophets, it seems fair to Amos. 
I don't just mean the famous lines in chapter five about how I despise your sacrifices, so let justice roll down like waters, lines beloved of Martin Luther King Jr. I don't just mean the confrontation we see here with Amaziah. I mean that Amos almost never complains about idolatry. Unlike most prophets where the call for social justice is one strand woven together with condemnations of Israelite idolatry and syncretism, Amos says almost nothing about the fact that Jeroboam has erected statues of golden bulls at Bethel. He seems to take for granted the validity of the Bethel shrine. He seems to be saying that it's not idol worship that's gone wrong, it's Yahweh worship that has gone wrong. Yahweh worship as it has been appropriated by the king and Israelite nationalism, a familiar situation. So as Bart wrote, it's not for nothing that Amos on the one hand has been so frequently neglected on the other that he has been the classical biblical witness for all the movements in which the conscience of the church has been awakened. Fine, but what makes me interested in prophets now more than ever is that climate change makes it really hard to avoid the most neglected question of all. When is 722? 722, just in case you need to be reminded, was when the Northern Kingdom was destroyed for good. Amos prophesies in the Golden Age of Israel, but he knows that the Golden Age is a lie and that the Assyrians are on their way. But until I started working on ecotheology, I never asked that question. I never asked, when is 722? I don't know if that seems weird or if asking it seems weird, but my consciousness of the prophets has shifted its weight from the message of social justice to the prediction of catastrophe. If the message of the prophets is, can be reduced to four words, shape up or else, for most of my life, I concentrated on the shape up. And I never thought about the or else. Now I think about the or else all the time. Climate scientists and activists hate the kind of doom saying I'm approaching, as they should. So before you say, okay, doomer, <laughs> I want to be clear. I do not mean to say that 722 is around the corner. I do not mean to deny that it's always 722 somewhere. I'm not saying that 1.5 degrees is unachievable, but I'm trying to do at least three things. First, expose my own pessimism, expose my own fear for my students, and for my children, and for my extended family in Ethiopia, where like most places in the global south, mitigation and adaptation will be much harder. Expose it not because I want to promote it, but I want to examine it in public to make room 
for a conversation about climate sadness, climate despair, in order to keep it in check, as if saying it out loud might weaken some of its hold on me or on all of us. Second, my interest in Amos as a prophet of doom, my interest in the question of when is 722, has provoked another question. If he's so sure that the Assyrians are coming, why is he even bothering to prophesy? Why has God called him if doom is inevitable? To raise that question is to place oneself not 2,700 years after the prophet, but in his present. To open your mouth to resist voicelessness is to resist despair. That has helped me understand why Hayho, over and over again, in article after article, says the most important thing to do about climate change is to talk about it. And why she's dedicated so much of her energy in writing, precisely as an evangelical, to educating us on how to talk to climate skeptics. Can you show me the next slide, Clay? That's not to say that I want to entirely turn my back on doomsaying and start pumping my veins full of hopium. So, thanks, Caleb. Uh, so in conclusion, I want to point out a couple things about this slide. Climate scientists and activists hate doomsaying but they know there's a very thin line between truthfully sounding the alarm and generating the kind of fatalism I have been circling. So maybe this last slide strikes the kind of balance we need. So, um, I'm not quite sure which way to look here. Um, the pink you can see here is, uh, uh, pre-2015 climate agreements. The orange is where we are now. The yellow is uh, pledges that have not become policy yet. 1.5 degrees is where we're trying to get. We seem likely to avoid the pink. That's good. We seem unlikely to get to the blue. That's bad. But what the climate scientists and activists will tell you is that even if we don't make 1.5 degrees, every tenth of a degree on this slide is tens of thousands of lives which is to point out an all-important disanalogy with Amos in the Northern Kingdom. Climate change does not present us with a clear, decisive turning point like an Assyrian invasion. So insofar as you can see the orange there as progress, it is because of the tireless work of activists. And those activists will all tell you 
that the antidote to despair is not hope, it's action. Hope is not the prerequisite for action, it is the product of action. Maybe any action. That is to say, the progress we see in this slide is because of actions like the Sunrise Movement sit in in Nancy Pelosi's office, because of the children that followed Greta Thunberg in her school strike. But maybe our, or my cynicism about individual actions, recycling, biking, tree planting, gardening, solar panels on my house, is missing the point that those things may turn out to be the things that don't necessarily solve climate change, but are productive of hope for those of us who are tempted to ask, when is 722 a little too often? Thanks. Thank you, Peter, and thank you for the memorable line that hope is not the prerequisite for action, but the result of action. And one action that we always have at our disposal is prayer and committing ourselves in prayer. And so I invite you to join me in this litany of commitment. It is on the screen, but it involves turning to the four directions of the compass, and so we will have our backs to the screen at some point. Therefore, if you have a hymnal, you might want to open it to 864 so that you have these words in front of you. If you are at home, we invite you to read what is on the screen and to picture yourself facing the various corners of the earth. So let us stand. And just as a reminder to orient us, we have north and south and then east and west. We offer thanksgiving to our creator, recalling that Christ is the center of creation and our lives as Christians. As we face east, the direction of the rising sun, we offer thanks for the gifts of the tree world and for new beginnings. Help us to be honest with you and others and to be wise and just in our use of the resources of the earth. We give thanks to you, O God. As we face south, where we receive warmth, we offer thanks for the gifts of the animal world and for the call to be humble. Enable us to walk good paths, to live as family should, and with you to renew the face of the earth. We give thanks to you, O God. As we face west, where we receive teachings of faith, 
We offer thanks for the gifts of the rock world and the purifying and fruitful waters. Sustain us and the earth through your Holy Spirit and give us faith as strong as the rock. We give thanks to you, O God. As we face north, the direction of wind and snow, we offer thanks for the plant world and for kindness and wisdom. Breathe your strength and endurance into us and give us wisdom to treat each other with kindness. We give thanks to you, O God. As we face center, from above comes the unconditional love of God. From the earth comes the gift of life. We give thanks for love like the wings of the eagle. We dedicate our lives to you, our creator and savior. As we walk on this earth, may we learn together and celebrate the way of peace, harmony, and tranquility. We give thanks to you, O God. Let's remain standing as we sing hymn number 788, The Garden Needs Our Tending Now, <clears throat> 788. Bom, bom. Mm. The garden needs our tending Yeah. 
invite you to join us back here next week for our final seminary chapel worship of the school year. It is hard to believe that that is already upon us, but here we are. Let us receive this benediction. God has created all things new. God calls us to participate in bringing that newness to creation. So go forth now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to live and love simply and in harmony with all creation. Amen.